it's been a while since I recorded a regular podcast, just me and someone talking about their experience with herpes. So I'm pumped to have you on here, Leslie, to share your experience. What are your pronouns? Yeah, um, I'm Leslie, and I use she, her. Uh, I guess you can use they, them for me. It wouldn't offend me. It wouldn't upset me. Gender is not real. So. Ooh, gender is <laughs> not real. Explain that for me. It's experienced as real in terms of, like, people will treat you based differently based on the gender they perceive you to have but it's a social construction it's not like there isn't anything inherent to it so there's no reason that i should be upset if somebody was like they like my feelings aren't hurt that's that's fine we're gonna have such a great conversation you want to talk about a hell of a start so gender is a social construct um it'll be like the theme of of my speech today is everything is made up (laughs) and our job is to just point that out and then make better things nothing is real even what we think is real yeah well i mean things are experienced as real you know like apples do fall from trees um like i don't want to suggest that people don't experience their social identities as real because when the world again interacts with you differently based on a perceived identity that is real that is material right um but that doesn't mean that sort of the idea structure behind it is like natural or real or essential wow where do you teach at Uh, I'm not going to share my specific university because, well, so in context, uh, I run a meme page at Make God Gay Again, um, and I'm doing a lot of activism over there, and the platform is growing a little faster than I expected, and so I don't know how I feel right now about having my real name attached to it, university, and I'm a PhD student. I'm not ashamed of anything I post on there. I do think that my bosses would be ashamed of some of it so i'm not gonna say my specific university um i teach at a a state university i teach intro to women's studies right now which i really really enjoy um and i'm a part of an english department but i work in women and gender studies a lot i also work in political science and most of the stuff that i research is like white supremacy and male supremacy online and just online organizing in general um and so yeah i'm really into any kind of like online activism whether it be a podcast, memes, whatever. Whatever gets me to the people is is what I will do. Yeah, it's really nice to see how social media is being used in terms of activism. Um, like, I think back to the Uncle Sam ads, I want you to go to the army. Like, what would those have looked like now? Or when the um, the woman with the scarf around her head and she's flexing. Oh, and right it, the Riveter? Yeah. Yeah, I know for me, like, so I was, just for context, uh, Social positioning is really important for myself. I always want people to know where I'm located socially, even if they don't know me as a person. Um, So I'm cisgender, I'm queer identified. Uh, Again, I use she, hers. Able-bodied, I am white, as very, very, very white. Um, I think I hit all of them. Oh yeah, uh, again, my STI status, I I have herpes. For me, I was actually raised in this 600 person town, um, very conservative and very isolated. And so I really grew up with like these intensely homophobic, intensely racist viewpoints that I really didn't call into question until I was maybe 17 or so. And especially the homophobia is funny because like compulsory heterosexuality is so strong that I think for a lot of young queer women you can't, and queer people in general, you can't even like recognize your attraction for what it is. You just think that you have really intense friendships. And then later on, you're like, oh, I just had internalized homophobia and couldn't recognize myself as like being a queer person. So the reason that I started healing from that and learning from that is because of the Internet. I found Tumblr when I was uh, about 17 and I would not have had access to any of this information about like social justice. Otherwise, I never 
would have had anybody in my life telling me like, hey, what you're saying is racist. People would have been supporting it, right? So I can remember being like 15 years old in my government class being like, well, Barack Obama shouldn't be the president because, you know, his middle name's Hussein. Just like straight up racism, right? Um, but that was a learned behavior that I just I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna say because he's black. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't but that was the implication also, yeah. right? Like that's what it always is for like white people. Like they'll talk around it, but that's what it is. Um, and so like I had, yeah, these really intensely problematic views, but I just I didn't have the social context or environment in which that would ever be called into question for me until I got online. Um, and there was a lot of sort of like activism on Tumblr around that time in like 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, online activism has really always been powerful for me personally. I've always found a lot of community in it and found it to be a really healing thing. So being a part of it now and actually having a platform, and getting some followers like it's still kind of I don't have a very big page but it's very weird to think that like I could access a couple thousand people a day kind of easily that's very weird for me um but exciting like I, I feel like I'm connecting with some people in a real way which I love oh, yeah. I'm, like a mush but yeah <laughs> these Instagram connections and social media and internet connections as a whole like these are very real connections while it may not seem that way just because of proximity, but like, look at you and I now, you and I, you'd follow me for a while and then you made this page and then I saw something you posted and found out that you were someone yeah. from before who already followed me. I first messaged you almost a year ago. Yeah. Like last March. I don't remember the context of the conversation because I've only been looking at the newest page now. What yeah. was it? When you first reached out, do you remember? Or did you go yeah, back and look at it? because I had literally just, it was like the same week I had just been diagnosed. And I had actually, I'd started following your page like a month before that. And it was really funny because I was like, oh, thank God. I started following this page because I started following yours and a couple of others um, that were doing STI activism in general. And I have always like, been interested in sex positivity but that just wasn't part of my wheelhouse that I was as aware of and so I had followed a bunch of pages kind of intentionally and so then it was funny when I got my diagnosis I was like oh my god it was funny my doctor just clearly was my diagnosis was kind of a funny story because it was basically like three women all at once like looking at my vagina and I was like oh fun this is so special for me three of you um and they all and they sort of told me and all like the main doctor clearly was waiting for me to have a breakdown, like clearly was just bracing herself for it. And I didn't have one. I was like, well, you know, sucks, but like, it's not a big deal because I've been following your page and pages like it for, you know, a month or two and was sort of in the know on it. And so I think I messaged you that week just to be like, Hey, by the way, thank you. Like, because this would have been a lot more emotionally devastating than it was had I not already sort of been clued in on some of this. Yeah. Why'd you have three doctors in there? It's a funny story, yeah. Um, it's because I uh, they'd asked if they could have, like, a nursing student, like, a resident in there. And I um, used to teach high school, and so I always had to, like, ask to be a part of classrooms. And so I, that was, like, fine. I was like, of course, like, you got to learn somehow. Um, obviously, that's always a little scary. It's like, oh, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're in charge. Okay. But it was fine. But so it was her and sort of her supervising nurse. And then basically they called in um, the sort of head of the, like, women's department there 
to give me my diagnosis because I think she was just more experienced with it. So yeah, I wound up with three people and they were like opening the door and I like didn't have pants on. It was like, it was fine. You would think I would have been really stressed out. It wasn't as stressful as it sounds though. I know it was weirder for me than it was for any of them. And that's like very comforting. So. Okay. Well, that's good. So you were comfortable in receiving your diagnosis when you went into it having already accessed something positive for positive people and the other social media accounts that you follow that speaks sex positivity and talk about SCIs going into it what kind of headspace were you in like I mean before you made the appointment and went into before you got your diagnosis I wasn't going in because I was really having any symptoms it was because I had had sex with a partner about like a week prior and I sort of in the moment of it of of, like consenting to this like had one of those gut feelings it was like this person is probably not being honest with me on several points and I didn't listen to that voice in my head which is something I really want to talk about a lot like why that was and like how I process that in therapy and stuff um because there are a lot of complex reasons that people will say yes to things even when they don't necessarily feel comfortable or safe And so I had sort of had that feeling already going in um, to the doctor's office that, like, this person maybe hadn't been very honest with me. I kind of did the, like, ask them for screening everything. And then they decided to give me an exam, and they were like, oh, I wasn't having symptoms. They were like, oh, we're going to go ahead and test you for herpes, too, because we think maybe, like, we're not really sure, but we're going to give you the test. Um, That's weird. Yeah, well, it was because, like, I wasn't having, like, any external symptoms, but when they were, like, doing the inspection, they were like, oh, it looks like you might, like, and that's also why they had called the, like, head of the department in, because she had more experience, and they were like, we don't really know. Like, it was just so mild that it was really hard to diagnose. Um, wow, until they so, so they could have missed it. Yeah, yeah, they could have. Because um, I didn't even, like, like I said, like, I went in, like, not really having any symptoms, not really, I kind of had, like, a bad gut feeling, like, I don't know, sometimes your intuition kind of, I'm like, I think something might be going on. And this is a great point to bring up why it is so necessary to be completely honest with your doctors. I don't think they probably would have been as careful if I hadn't been honest about like, no, we had like unprotected sex, which I think a lot of people are not willing to tell their doctors. And I'm guessing that that's probably one of the reasons why they were like, oh, well, we should make sure that we're being really thorough here. I just did an episode with someone at a public health conference who talked about how important that transparency is between doctor patient to be able to establish that trust in a way where the doctor isn't being judgmental toward the patient so that they can get all of the information to best serve them because if you felt judged at all you may not have wanted to share that you had unprotected sex and then there may not have been as thorough of an examination they could have just assumed that you weren't seeing anyone or that you were in a monogamous heterosexual relationship and just giving you your chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, trick test and HIV and then just sent you on your way without that physical examination. So that's great health care. <laughs> I also think there is sort of, I don't know, like I really wanted to stress today in talking to you, like the fact that we often think about individual decisions is being really isolated in time, right? Like it happened right now and you were just making decisions based on immediate factors instead of thinking about things really on a longer scale of things, right? So there are a lot of reasons that people would decide not to tell their doctors information like that. And it's not just about the immediate transaction, social transaction in that moment. It's about an entire history before, right? So maybe you have somebody who never 
had access to healthcare growing up, right, and are still very uncomfortable in medical settings. And so that's part of why it's hard for them to tell the truth, right? It's not just this, like, I think sometimes we have the sense that it's just like, maybe irresponsibility is the only reason that people don't say things. And I'm like, no, actually, there's a lot of systemic reasons that people might not say things. You can also think about, you know, maybe people who have faced a lot of medical discrimination, there is a shitload of medical racism, a shitload of medical sexism. I was actually, I gave a lecture on this to my intro to women's studies class like a couple weeks ago. And I'm still shocked by it. Like, and my students were still shocked by it. Like how just insanely sexist and racist the medical community is. It can be extremely ableist. It can be extremely fat phobic. Like, so a lot of times if people have just awful relationships with the medical field, like, of course they're not going to go in and tell the honest truth about things because they kind of just want to get in and get out. And this is part of the reason why we need a button advocating for empathetic, queer-friendly healthcare. Had to plug that in there. This is like the perfect place for it after everything that you just said. No, absolutely. Well, and I'm really lucky because I do get most of my healthcare at a university clinic, which I actually really like because they tend to be a lot more queer-friendly. They tend to be a lot more sort of like aware of social, how social kind of existence influences interactions in a, in a medical setting. Um, so yeah, luckily, like my clinic is really great about like, they have really explicit signs everywhere around like, let us know your pronouns. And they have a great chaperone program. So you can ask for a medical chaperone. If you're having some kind of exam, you can ask for another person in the program to like be in the room with you, which is great. Like a lot of really wonderful, um, safety measures. Um, they're great about letting you like sort of pick which doctors you want to see. Okay. That's really cool. I like that. I think that having a chaperone when you just go and get tested, I think that that helps. It eases a lot of the stress and it allows you to have sort of like a, 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 not a battle buddy. I don't know why I wanted to say battle buddy, but (laughs) just a friend with you because that's often what many of us need. We don't really feel like we can tell someone close to us that we're going to get tested or that we may have some sort of health concerns just in fear of any kind of judgment at all being able to go with someone who's maybe been through it before has a little bit of experience whatever that makes it a lot easier to go through and then if the test results are something that weren't expected or something that you may not have been prepared for or even if you know everything comes back negative you've got that person that's there to help you with the next steps Yeah, well, and it's also absolutely just, I think, great for people who do have safety concerns, right? So maybe on the social level, if you do experience a lot of medical discrimination, it can be great to have another person in the room there that you can sort of like, be like, proof, this happened. Um, And I do want to plug just a really important thing for people to know that you can do if your doctor isn't listening to you um, and you're like saying you're reporting pain or symptoms and they're like kind of dismissing you, which happens a lot to people of color and happens a lot to women, um, you can ask them like, hey, will you know in my chart that you refuse to test me for this or that you refuse to address X, Y, Z. And a lot of the times that just asking them to do it, um, it's good to have the record, but also just asking them to do it will sort of like motivate them to do the thing you want them to do. Um, That's a good little hack. But also, especially for survivors, um, having to go in and get examined can be an incredibly emotionally difficult and physically uncomfortable experience. So being able to have another person in the room just so that you feel safe and you don't feel like you're being isolated with one other person in this very vulnerable position, I think is wonderful. And especially for young people, um, like I really appreciate that they do it on the college campus. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that because I didn't know that you could ask. Well, and I think there's a certain power dynamic too that comes with being the patient in the room with the doctor, medical professional, where it's they're always right. Whatever they say goes, but that's not necessarily always true. You're still... You're the customer. I hate to say the customer is always right, but we tend to compensate. Any good business is going to compensate for demand and the customer creates the demand. So if you're asking for something to be charted, like I asked you to test me for this because I'm in pain, maybe someone just wants extra medication for something they may not need it for. But at the same time, it's important to validate those those requests. And if you are in pain and you're not being taken seriously for it, being able to just say, hey, can you put in my chart that I mentioned this and you said whatever you said, that's a game changer for patients to be able yeah. to do that. It's so important. And I feel really like bad that people don't know that they can do that. Um, and I think, again, like, yeah, once you get into things like having dynamics of racism and sexism, plus the medical settings where, especially if you have a doctor who's like, everything I say is right and you know nothing. Again, I was telling my students, it's something like 80% of people who suffer from chronic pain are women. But if you look at like emergency rooms, women are generally speaking only about half as likely to be prescribed painkillers, um, like strong painkillers as men. And actually, I don't know if you know this, in the United States, at least, women were almost completely excluded from medical trials prior to the 1980s because there was this idea that, like, quote, like, they would maybe put their reproductive systems at risk or something. I don't know. It was, like, a stupid reason. But basically, the assumption was that women are just, like, men with a couple of extra parts. You don't actually need to test female bodies separately. And even, like, they would only use male mice even to that extent. And so the roots of medical sexism are so strong. One of the reasons that they think at least people who are born with uteruses have experienced more pain is they think that based on the hormones in your body, you actually are more susceptible to pain and experience it at a higher intensity. But this wasn't something that you found out so much later on because females were excluded from medical trials for so long. And that's also why you see things like all of these um, reports about what heart attack symptoms for women are, right? That's actually pretty recent. And it's because they didn't realize that the symptoms for women are different until fairly recently and it can be really similar with medical racism where I was reading this study about they had surveyed I think 300 medical students who were residents they were practicing about like basically racist beliefs to see if they had these racist beliefs and it was something like 60% of these students had at least some racist beliefs about black people feeling less pain yeah, I know I know about that. Yeah, I didn't know what the statistics were, but I remember hearing that commonly in the media is just that um, black people, black women specifically in labor, uh, their symptoms are not taken seriously or they they're shown to have like a higher pain tolerance or something. Yeah, like Beyonce like almost died. Serena Williams almost died during labor because their concerns weren't. So even like these really famous prolific women aren't taken seriously. And if you look at the rates of mortality for black mothers, it's about five times the rate um, of mortality in the United States as white mothers. Um, so yeah, even racist beliefs, like the idea that black people have thicker skin, that like that is something that doctors believe. <laughs> um, and so in addition to sort of what you were saying earlier about like the customer is always right, I think about it also in terms of autonomy of when you have this constant social gaslighting saying like, 
no, of course your doctor's not discriminating against you. Like, this is just in your head. It's really important to have structures that allow people to maintain autonomy over their own bodies and autonomy over their own health processes. And so things like being able to say, like, will you note that you refuse to do this test on me is really important. Maybe people have this hesitance or resistance to being able to do that because they don't want to be mean or they don't want to seem like a jerk but this is your body we're talking about and I I want to speak to that person right now just be like hey you know your doctor whoever it is that you're speaking with they this is your body and this is your choice this is your freedom to be able to exercise that so being able to say like hey this is me standing up for myself. I know what I'm feeling. I know what I'm experiencing and I need help. If you're not going to help me, you need to be able to note that you wouldn't help me so that when I go and get help somewhere else, <laughs> it's yeah, your ass. And for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. It's so crucial. I, I hate that there is this sort of issue of objectivity in the sciences that they truly believe that they're objective which is just especially as somebody i do a lot of work on what is called epistemology which is the study of how knowledge is produced so i look at a lot at like how is this knowledge created part of the reason that doctors still have all these racist beliefs is because some of the information they believe is still coming down from a tradition of eugenics and so another thing people don't realize is like nazis literally imported American racism. They imported eugenics from the USA, right? That is actually something that started here and was then imported there and then used to justify genocide. And so people don't look at the fact that, like, if you trace it back, it started in the United States with medical racism. Um, That has always been sort of the hub of it. Um, And if you look at reproductive care just throughout the ages, it's just littered with, like, these racist abuses. So another good example is the hormonal birth control pill was tested on Puerto Rican women, often without their knowledge or consent. Many of them were sterilized. Um, They weren't sure that the pill was safe. And, and that's, you know, this forgotten part of our history that like white women in, you know, the fifties really benefited. I think they started the trials. It was 1952 to 56, I believe off the top of my head, which is also only four years for a really complicated medicine that affects all parts of your body. Right. Um, But so that was tested on Puerto Rican women, and there is also a history in the United States of sterilization of specifically black women and indigenous women um, and just medical warfare. And there are still roots of that in our medical practice today that sort of go unquestioned. Um, And so that's something that I think a lot of people would benefit from having been told explicitly, because a lot of the times we sort of feel when injustice is happening, like our bodies tell us that something unfair is happening. But power is really flexible, and so its job is to constantly gaslight you and be like, no, no, as well as, like, you were talking about politeness earlier. Politeness serves power really well, right? Because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. We don't want to offend them. But, like, when the standard of comfort is, like, white men's comfort, right, and everybody else just has to make sure to do things that don't make them uncomfortable, what we've now got is a system that just constantly reinforces power, Um, So it's like, oh, I don't want to call this person out for being sexist because I'm polite. That serves power really, really well. Well, when you say it that way, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And not wanting to check people's behaviors that are unethical or overall just shitty, that's something that serves power. Even if it's, oh, that's my buddy. That's just who he is. He's like that. Those kinds of things just perpetuate the status quo and allow things to continue to be the way that they are. 
Yeah, and I think something really important to point out is, like, I, I say this to my students, I'm like, frankly, like, it's not about you as a person most of the time. It's about the behavior, right? And the behavior is a systemic issue. It's not about you as an individual trying to do something bad. And when we limit our definitions of racism or sexism to just, like, this person is intentionally trying to be racist or sexist, Robin D'Angelo talks about this a lot in her book, White Fragility, where she talks about, um, you know, if you tell a white person, hey, what you have said is racist, what they hear is, I am a bad person. You are saying I'm a bad person. And a lot of the times it's like, no, you have nothing to do with this. I just need you to address the behavior, right? But when it becomes this issue of like, not wanting to upset people and, and now like the cost of saying something about like, hey, that was sexist, that was racist, the cost is so high interpersonally that you just don't have those conversations. Um, I think it's really important to recognize those dynamics as being just present all of the time. I really follow the kind of wisdom of one of my favorite feminists, who is Sarah Ahmed, who's amazing. Quick plug, she wrote Living a Feminist Life. She is just the best person. She's amazing. She was this incredibly successful professor who just like left the institution. She's like, this is bullshit. You guys are part of power. You have no interest in actually undoing your oppression. So I'm leaving and I'm going to go publish like on my own. And she did. But so she makes the argument that really in order to be a feminist, you need to embrace the figure of the killjoy, which is the person who is willing to ruin someone's happiness or comfort if that happiness and comfort relies on harm to others. So yeah, I am very willing to make people uncomfortable and be impolite if their comfort rests on harm to somebody like all right like you can be unhappy like eventually privileged people are going to have to be made unhappy in order for us to like make some movement on these things it's not going to be polite yeah wow you were really passionate about this i, I like yeah, it I, get angry. I didn't know i didn't know uh, i mean i didn't foresee the conversation going like this until we started talking and you were like yeah Nobody all of I wish I would run into you at a bar because like we'd be off in the corner just like yelling and drinking and chugging and like, yeah, yeah no, this and that. I mean, I think I'm friendly about it. Like I'm not, I don't like approach people as like an aggressive, mean person unless they're just acting like bigots, in which case I really will. And I really enjoy that because like I do think a lot of my female friends, boyfriends are really afraid of me. I think it's because they know like I'm not afraid to like call them on behavior that harms my friend like i'll be like hey my friend was dating this guy for a little while that i just i found him to be so just irredeemable he just drove me crazy and he was an academic also when we were both academics and he would just constantly shut women out of the conversation as if like we weren't competent and i'm like i'm sorry sir like i'm smarter than you don't shut me out of this conversation and so eventually one day i just like asked him point blank i was like hey so and so do you feel that you respect women i just asked him and his response, I'll, I'll just never forget it. He's like, like, what would that even be like? It's not a hard question. Um, and the fact that you respond that way tells me that you know you don't respect women and you're not even trying to. And so, yeah, I think that's really important. And I, I see that with, you know, even your activism. It's not like you're out to make people uncomfortable. But talking about herpes makes people uncomfortable. People don't want to talk about it, right? Sorry, we eventually have to talk about it. We eventually have to make people uncomfortable if we're going to make any movement on this. Being willing to do that, I think, is a very difficult job for an activist because it also requires you to be uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to go out and 
I mean, I guess it's comfortable-ish for me now, but to talk to people about your sex life, it's not comfortable to be like, oh, yes, hi, I have herpes, ask me anything. You have to be willing to do it. Now that we're back on the subject of herpes, one thing that I've recently seen, I saw somewhere that herpes has been here before humans. So a more accurate statement would be, rather than saying I have herpes, would be herpes have humans. <laughs> and so when you look at it like that, it's it's really funny to think about that way. The stigma itself is what's new and it's what shapes our behaviors. But I mean, herpes has been here and humans are newer to this place so like imagine if herpes could talk they'd be like oh fuck man i got humans (laughs) well and it's also all about like how do we configure the normative body how do we configure the body what is normal if two-thirds of the world is carrying one version of the virus like herpes is normal like it is more normal than not having herpes just statistically like as a fact right but I think, and you brought up a really important point um that the stigma is new and that's true and that is a stigma that I want to call attention to the fact is specifically colonial. And I know that sounds like a real jump. I'll take you there. Um, So marriage monogamy has not always been configured this way, the way we have it configured today in America, for example, in all societies at all times. Like that's just not the case, right? You look historically like plenty of societies were and continue to be non-monogamous, right? But so what you really get with the institutionalization of marriage well, I'll just ask you, Courtney, who benefits from marriage the, as an institution? Oh, okay. I was I was going to say the person who doesn't have health insurance. <laughs> yeah. Well, so now, okay, so now we know, like, systemically there are material benefits to marriage. But maybe, like, in a longer historical sense, who does marriage serve really well and who does it serve maybe less well? Well, no, uh, the way I see it, like, the way marriage works is you get the government involved. There's an entire industry around it, like the wedding planners, the venues, the church stores for wedding registries. It's very money driven. A lot of it is driven off of profit. If people regularly just went to the courthouse and got married or whatever, what would that do to the industry? What would marriage then look like if it's not as glamorized as it is by the wedding and the dresses and the events? And you're getting to it. So this is the great thing. This is what I try to train my students is like, usually we have the example. We can point to the example. You have to sort of take one further step back to actually see the structure of it behind the example. And so the structure that you're really pointing at is capitalism. Marriage is really beneficial under capitalism, not just because now people will go out and, and, you know, get married. But if you look at its original institution, institutionalization, um, Vladimir Lenin writes about this. I know I'm going to like drop some like communist literature in here people are gonna be like ah, it's fine chill out i guess people are more interested in it now there's less of a stigma around like marxist literature now which i'll also suggest that that stigma serves power really well most stigmas serve, serve power really well oh you know um step drop, dropping this in here like um for sex workers i saw something about it being taboo actually may serve uh the industry even oh, more absolutely. okay I, I don't remember what i saw but it was on uh the strange bedfellows podcast with l stanger and i cannot for the life of me remember exactly what they said but i remember seeing that in the statistic form or yeah. i'm sorry hearing her say something along those lines so i don't even want to butcher the quote but go listen to the podcast right. every episode and then if you find it let me know <laughs> Well, and that'll intersect sort of with the conversation I was bringing up based on Lenin. So he writes in The Origin of the State and the Family, um, 
he talks about the institutionalization of marriage was specifically a capitalist iteration of patriarchy, right? And because it was capitalism, it was then imported. It was a colonial construct that was sort of forced onto indigenous people and and black people and and basically anybody who wasn't European. This was then exported and forced upon people, this idea of monogamy and marriage. Obviously, all kinds of cultures have had different types of pairing ceremonies or whatever, but marriage specifically is patriarchal because it was really useful when people started sort of accumulating enough wealth and capital that they wanted to pass it on. Once you have private property, you have inheritance, right? So what do we consider when we have inheritance? You want to make sure that kid is yours, right? (laughs) So that's the main thing. And for people who have uteruses, you know it's yours. It came out of your body. There's no doubt. But for people who have fetuses, that's not always clear, right? And so marriage and monogamy serves men really well, and specifically capitalist men, because The idea has always been you need to limit the number of people that women are having sex with in order to assure this sort of like, first of all, ownership of her and regulation of her body and her sexuality, right? But secondly, to ensure the logic of inheritance, right? Whereas the expectation has always sort of been that men will have sex outside of marriage. And so when we connect that back to the stigma of prostitution um, historically and then sex work today, right? the reason that there is a taboo, the reason that there is a stigma is because we still need to maintain this social framework that values marriage and specifically places value for women on the idea of like not being quote unquote used, right? Of being virtuous or belonging to one man. That idea of women belonging to one man serves capitalism and serves men really, really well, right? And that's why um, sex workers are so devalued as humans, right? Because they don't meet that sort of heteronormative imperative. So capitalism is like, well, you're valueless. But when it does that, now what you've done is you've created this sect of people that are really ripe for exploitation because society has rejected them. And now that serves men really well too because they have this really vulnerable population that they just get to exploit the shit out of. And I think that's why people have so many problems now, like such an issue with sex workers being like, nah like are you kidding like i'm gaming men like i'm the one exploiting him like people have a real issue with that because it sort of starts pulling apart the fabric of this cis heteropatriarchal monogamy concept as soon as you have that happening the whole system sort of gets weaker and so you also have these calls to traditionalism and that like marriage is falling apart and the family is falling apart right all of these moral panic things it's because all of these different narratives are tied up in a single framework. And once you sort of knock over one Jenga piece, the rest starts to crumble. As you talk, I keep visualizing, I just finished season one of The Handmaid's Tale and Uh everything that you're saying right now, I'm like, oh, oh, this fits into that narrative of the TV show. Well, and I don't think people realize how entirely plausible it is. I actually stopped watching it because it was just, it was too much emotional work for me. I had to really spend like an hour and a half beforehand preparing myself and then the hour watching it and then two hours after feeling shitty about it. And so one really good example, like people don't realize the first thing that they do in this society is cut off women's ability to have money and own property, right? That seems totally out there, right? Like that would never happen in a million years. You can't own property if you are property. Yeah, well, so, but fun fact, did you know how recent it is for women to be allowed to own property without men and to be allowed to have credit cards? That's really something that only came around in the 80s. Oh, wow, I did not know that. I know, that seems like really shocking, but no, yeah, typically women were not allowed to 
buy property without men um, before the 80s. Uh, as well as, yeah, credit cards weren't something that women could have without men until the 80s, which yeah. makes sense if you think about, like, the 50s. Obviously, in the 50s, that was how it was, right? But the 50s and the 80s aren't that far apart. And so I think a lot of the times it seems like this stuff was further away, but really, women have only had rights to private property in a similar way to men for, like, the last 30 years. So it's not crazy to think yeah. that that could be sort of undone that's not crazy at all um and it was sort of like when trump was elected people thought that it would be crazy for abortion rights to be overturned or like crazy for like equal marriage to be overturned and like here we are you know i still see in 2019 women go to the car dealership with a man so yeah. i mean i guess it's not too much has changed <laughs> since then i don't know or, like, the legal capacity but the structure socially yeah. isn't much different the reason i say that is to say this is there a certain level of not trust, but reputability. I don't know, but there's what is it called? Where okay, you're a woman shopping for a car. It doesn't matter what man you bring with you. That man can know absolutely nothing about cars, but having a man with you does something for the car purchasing process. Well, it's because it increases your social capital. Okay, basically. all right. Well, so that might be. Can be a measure of like privilege and how easy it is for you to get things done in the world because of a social identity because of access to certain types of discourse even so right so men are often more willing to sort of do their guy pals uh, a favor right and they can sort of talk about it and and there's this sort of implied assumption that like women are dumber and are going to be easier to fool and I think people really underestimate how completely our society wants women to be dumb like, I'm just going to drop that in there. Like, as I become more educated, this is just, like, so much clearer to me. Because, man, men do not want to date me anymore. The idea of having to date a woman who is better educated than them, they cannot do it. I'm not exaggerating. Like, I'm truly not. I had a guy dump me last year, and he was basically like, well, I'm just used to dating women that I have to explain things to. And whenever I debate you about things, I can't tell if I disagree with you or if you just know more than me. And he was literally, like, saying, like, I'm dumping you to date a girl that I think is dumber than me, right? And if you look statistically, women who have education past a bachelor's degree have a lot of trouble dating men. Like, a lot of trouble. Um, because men don't want to date us. And so I think we really, again, underestimate that half of it. And I mean, so to connect back to sexual health also, like... I think there's also an expectation by a lot of straight men that, like, women are easily duped and that that's an okay thing to do, that it's okay to manipulate information to obtain somebody's consent, which has happened to me many times. And so I think it's really important when we look at consent to actually have a more holistic, structural understanding of what consent is because it serves power really, really, really well if we think about consent as a simple yes or no in a single moment. Because what that does is it cuts out all of the context of how power operates throughout our lives, right? So well, I've sort of jotted... Oh, I can pause, sorry. No, it's okay. I, I like where you're going with this. I just want to... No, no. I want to make sure to touch on the kind of woman who will take a man to the car dealership rather than go in and fight for what's right 
there's a difference there because it translates into other things. And bear with me as I try and walk through this. So there's a kind of woman who will go to the car dealership alone because she's single and she knows what the fuck she's talking about. And she's going to get this car for this price and she's not going to leave out of there for anything less. There's that woman. And then there's a woman who can do that. But the easy way is to just bring a man with you and tell him, hey, we're not leaving without the car under this price. Well, why are you going to like push a boulder up the hill if you have a donkey pull it, you know? Yeah, but I mean, let's look at how that translates into other things. So it's easier to just dumb yourself down in order to stay in a relationship. So much easier. I see. Oh, man. You see you see where I'm going? Yeah. You see where I'm kind of trying to take this? Yeah, as okay. a grad student too, like, oh, it's amazing to me. Like, maybe I'll get, like, some hate for this. I don't care. As a whole, the women in my program are just way smarter than the men. And it's because they've had to work harder, frankly, to get there. Also, it's just a statistical fact that women have been outperforming men academically for forever. And specifically, black women are one of the best educated demographics in the United States. And people don't even realize this. But what I will see is that there will be a room of 13 of us in a seminar, and they will have... 10 women in it, majority women in my department. And yet when we talk, it's just like the men and me. I have a very masculine sort of presence. I'm like very feminine presenting, but I have a very like masculine presence and I'm very willing to take up space, but I'm very loud and I'm very like quick talking. So it's easy for me. Yeah. Like it's crazy because I'll just see, you know, I might take a class with several female colleagues for 10 weeks and only hear them talk in class three times, even though they are just these brilliant scholars there's this sort of like unwillingness to take up space which is learned and is reasonable frankly i think that people often reduce issues of discrimination to well people who are marginalized just need to sort of push through right Uh. it's like man life is so fucking hard sometimes i'm just like could i just control z being born like i just don't want to have to deal with it today i have so much shit on my plate i'm so tired why am I going to make my job harder when I go to a car dealership? Like, why am I going to go and spend an hour fighting with men who are just going to belittle me and treat me like shit, right? If I could just have, like, one of my dude friends come with me and just avoid the whole thing. Obviously, again, that serves power well because I avoid the confrontation. You can't expect marginalized people to constantly be making their lives harder in order to change the world. Like, you can't put that burden solely on marginalized people. So I think, again, like, there's a real discourse that black people and specifically black women will save us and indigenous women will save us right they're so woke and they're gonna like fix our society and like god is a black woman you know like there's this real myth around it but it's like obviously they're great but when you have that mythology what you're doing is you're putting all of the work of fixing society on them and you're making it so that they're not allowed to be flawed they have to automatically be virtuous individuals who just like are super woke and know everything right and aren't allowed to mess up so i think like cardi b is a good example where like people will like make fun of her for like not knowing the correct terminology about things even when she is trying to do activism you can't you can't expect perfection you can't expect people of color to be more than human because they're treated as less than human regularly like that's basically the idea is well since you're constantly being treated like less than human you've got to be even more better of human than anyone else and that also serves power so like mlk is a great example like people talk like every single person is supposed to be martin luther king jr and they also talk like he wasn't militant and he wasn't radical and you know what he was we just censor out all of that stuff because it serves power really well to be able to hold Martin Luther King Jr. and say, like, nonviolent protest, just, like, be, 
you know, civil protest, even though, like, I was, I, was, I was, like, talking to a family member who's very conservative, and they were like, well, I just don't think people should be kneeling at, at football games, you know, there are more respectful ways to protest, and I'm like, like, what? And they just, they just didn't have an answer. I, and I was like, you know, like, people always want to hold up MLK and be like, uh, you know, civil disobedience. Kneeling during the national anthem is the definition of civil disobedience. And, and, and yeah, like, you can't do that either. So we have to, I think, be really attentive to the way that, like, benevolent racism and benevolent sexism also function to uphold power. Even upholding power looks like the people who are sort of taking no action or who are sitting in their comfort like we go back to the example of oh I'm just going to take my my guy friend with me to shop for a car and how that translates into oh I'm just going to be with him because he has money or oh I'm going to support his racism or her racism I'm going to support their um, where they're spending their money and their investments and everything because I'm comfortable if my breadwinner is doing these things that are unethical and perpetuating the uh, negative aspects of the society that we live in why would I violate my comfort yeah I can look at other women and go ah I feel so bad for them I want to help but I'm not going to lose my comfort and I'm just going to continue to hang on to uh, my source of stability and luxury. Well, and I do want to say for like people who really fucking go through it, like it's reasonable to just want to survive and to like need stability. Like that's a reasonable impulse, but you got to stop and assess at what cost at a certain point. I completely get, you know what, if you are just so financially precarious, you're just like, you spent half your life not having enough to eat, not having a place to live, et cetera. All right, marry for money. Like, I get it. You know what? Like, you do what you got to do. Like, you're just trying to survive out here. But, yeah, once you do hit that comfort and you're like, well, now I'm comfortable. I'm not on the point of, like, not surviving. Now you need to be doing things other than surviving. You need to be, like, helping other people survive by making the world, like, a little more humane for them. And I think it's the same thing of, like, not being willing to, like, call out your friends, for example, when they're doing harmful shit, um, because you're like, well, but they're nice, and, like, I don't want to complicate the friendship, etc. You know, if they're the kind of person who shares your values, they will see that as a gift, an opportunity to learn and to unlearn, right? And I'm not going to say it's easy. Like, I have had friends and colleagues call me out and be like, hey, what you're saying really falls under benevolent racism, or, like, what you're doing is, like, a problem for these reasons, and they're completely right, and I don't need to necessarily feel bad that I had those beliefs because I was trained to have them, and frankly, me feeling bad doesn't really help anybody. If I'm just sitting in my feelings and wanting them to kind of console me, like, oh, you told me I said something racist, please console me, like, my feelings are so hurt. That just serves me, that just serves power, right? And so I haven't enjoyed being called out, it makes you uncomfortable, but being willing to sit with that discomfort and then say this is an opportunity to unlearn something and then actually unlearning it and acting upon it that is so important and yeah I just think that some of the most important people in my life who have made me a better person and who I appreciate the most were people who were willing to say things that were probably really uncomfortable for them and probably not easy to say and so I appreciate that and I appreciate the labor that that takes Mm -hmm. and these are things that were done for you you've had your behaviors beliefs challenged by people who aim to make you better and that's why dating you is such a challenge because that's what you do for other people and that's why guys are like hey listen I really don't want to deal with this shit I kind of just want someone that I can talk down to correct we just chill you want someone who you can control I think it's about control for a lot of people yeah and especially when you look at like the way that people date today and like hook up culture that's really hard for me because I think this is another example of how power is flexible and can 
reappropriate things that were radical and then make them sort of serve power again. So something like women's freedom to have sex with whoever they want. Yes, that was radical when it came out and it continues to be, but the context in which it is weaponized by patriarchy and by a rape culture and by hookup culture, which is a rape culture, frankly, the way it is weaponized, it's not feminist. And so like, I looked at myself and I was like, you know, even last year, I feel like every year I learn so much. It's crazy. And I look back at the last year and I'm like, wow, I was so unhappy. And I'm just like so much more healed now, um, which is great. I even look at last year and like, I was a self-declared feminist. and would absolutely call people out on shit on a daily basis. But when I got into romantic situations one-on-one with men, it was and continues to be so hard for me to say no. And it's not because I don't know better. It's not because I can't recognize what happened. Is it like happening? But it's because like the socialization is so deep and the culture of hookups being so like, you're just constantly getting rejected. Um, And I don't even mean like before the dates, I mean like you have sex with somebody and they just ghost you. Like that's a rejection. You're constantly being abandoned. And this is so regular and so normal and guys especially straight men think it is so normal to just mislead somebody about your intentions in order to get sex which is really funny because a lot of the times it's like I don't need you to pretend you want to date me like I'm very happy to have casual sex if that's what you want to do but you think that you need to lie to me to get it you need to manipulate my feelings to get it and then it becomes this miserable emotional process for me when it didn't have to be right and it puts me in the position now where every single time I go on a date with a man, I'm expecting him to reject me after I'm expecting him to use me and then treat me like shit after. And that makes it harder and harder to say no to anything he wants. Because I'm like, Oh, maybe if I just like say yes enough, like he won't treat me like shit. Like maybe I can control my behavior enough that he won't do this thing to me. And I think for really young women, like it takes so long to build up enough personal strength to be able to say no to a man when you are raised as a woman in a cis heterosexual society it's so fucking hard even when you know these things in your mind feel wrong like actually saying no is such a fucking process man i could count dozens of sexual interactions that like i was not comfortable with and i just went along with them because like i had this sort of devalued sense of myself also that it kind of doesn't matter sexual interactions are just never going to be fun for me anyway with men like they're just not so like who cares what level of shitty it is it's gonna suck anyway I don't know it's really powerful it kind of reminds me of um France Fanon and Amy Césaire who were black radicals sort of talk about this concept of colonization of the mind that I think applies everywhere else where it's like power's job is just to constantly terrorize you and constantly brainwash you and gaslight you and so it is so powerful that it gets to the point that you will constantly act against your own interests like that is how power works and so when people act like consent is always fully consensual as long as you like don't say no it's like no power is designed to terrorize me and to make me manageable so that when I'm put in this situation that is wrong I'm not going to do anything about it. That's literally how I've been socialized my whole life. And that's exactly what happened when you had that gut feeling that something was wrong with the person who gave you herpes. 
That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I hate to cut y'all off right here, but this episode was a really long one. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Like, I really got chills the entire time that we were speaking and just listening to Leslie talk and hearing her passion about these topics and just how enthusiastic she was. I didn't want to cut her off. I didn't want to stop her. I had to just let her keep going. So I think that this was a really good place for us to pause and pick up at in part two of the episode when um, I dropped that over the course of the next week. This conversation had to come out before next week's episode, which will be, well, not next week, but uh, episode, it'll be 118 with the Inner Hole Uprising podcast. I met two of the hosts at STD Engage, Sam and Rebecca, and uh, Rob, who wasn't able to be in attendance, shared a story that was very, very powerful and moving in terms of... Um, the We Need a Button campaign by the Dating.com group. So what We Need a Button is, if you haven't been listening to the podcast for a while, it's just a way for people to identify whether or not a healthcare provider is queer friendly. So it's just, um, I'm one of the people advocating for uh, more empathetic healthcare so that we can have that safe space so that we can get the best kind of healthcare provided to us um, and be able to have a good exchange with healthcare professionals and positive experiences that aren't traumatizing or triggering for us at all. And the stories that they shared were ones that I wanted to bring on the podcast. And I thought that Leslie's episode leading up to that episode gives you a broad general context of um, what the guests um, on episode 118 are going to share in relation to their experiences with healthcare professionals as far as uh, giving birth and SCI testing and uh, being treated for uh, reproductive health issues as well. So um, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed part one of this episode and then part two is going to help walk us uh, into what we're going to get from episode 118. So I thank you for listening, especially for this long and taking it into this one. Part two is a little bit uh, shorter than this one was, but um, I hope you make it through. I hope you want to finish this. I hope you enjoyed this and want more of it because these are content. These are topics that I'm genuinely passionate about myself. And while I may not have the specific schooling to teach it, I think that my experiences um, and, and being able to bring on people who have the knowledge, expertise, and um, background of history is enough to get the conversation going in a way that can be useful to us all. So um, this isn't going to be a podcast that kind of just completely shifts its topic, the big pictures, to be able to pay for people's therapy. And um we're heading that direction that's going to happen in 2020 and all i need from you all is to continue to just support the podcast and i'll take care of the rest uh this being a one-man show in all honesty i had to split this up into two because i didn't finish editing the other half of it but uh it's a one-man show i just went through a move um went through uh transition in me and sierra's break or relationship i'm trying not to say break up and still end up saying it um so uh and working and trying to get 
something positive for positive people to a place where uh, we're bringing in revenue consistently. The donations are helping uh, to put together the things that need to be done and take care of the costs of the paperwork and staying legal and keeping the IRS off my ass. Uh, I got a great board of directors behind me that's serving as advisors. I can't wait to announce those and put that up on the website once um, I get everything ready on my end. But I'm doing a lot on my own. And I'm getting to a place where things are beginning to level out. And as long as I'm able to just stay in this routine of getting the podcast out weekly, editing when I edit, recording when I record, and working with such awesome people, um, especially like Leslie today, then there will be nothing but consistent, good content, good quality content that is going to hopefully help guide people uh, through their healing processes. So uh, part two to this episode will be released within the next seven days of this uh, one being released. And um, yeah, if you like this, please rate, review, subscribe to share this podcast. It's not the likes on the ratings of the podcast players it's the reviews that get us additional promotion so that we can get up in the rankings so that people can find this content and be able to share it with their communities and people that need to find these resources and leslie as you'll hear as you heard in this podcast episode found this resource about a month before she was actually diagnosed and that's one of my goals as well for people to be able to have access to these stories and experiences so that they're equipped with the tools necessary to navigate a potential positive diagnosis or a disclosure from a partner or if they even have a scare like I just want people to be able to know what they are dealing with so it's all you know everything that you do all of your interactions all of the support all of the thank yous the messages the DMs the engagement publicly on social media it all helps keep this ship running the way that it is and before we know it we'll have a big breaking point and we'll be recording episodes live have better equipment have meetups events i am excited for what's to come till next time stay sex positive